Psalm 145, Hymn of Praise of David. I shall praise you to the heights, God my King. I shall bless your name forever and ever. Day after day, I shall bless you. I shall praise your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh and worthy of all praise, his greatness beyond all reckoning. Each age will praise your deeds to the next, proclaiming your mighty works. Your renown is the splendor of your glory. I will ponder the story of your wonders. They will speak of your awesome power, and I shall recount your greatness. They will bring out the memory of your great generosity and joyfully acclaim your saving justice. Yahweh is tenderness and pity, slow to anger, full of faithful love. Yahweh is generous to all. His tenderness embraces all his creatures. All your creatures shall thank you, Yahweh, and your faithful shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingship and tell of your might, making known your mighty deeds to the children of Adam, the glory and majesty of your kingship. Your kingship is a kingship forever. Your reign lasts from age to age. Yahweh is trustworthy in all his words and upright in all his deeds. Yahweh supports all who stumble, lifts up those who are bowed down. All look to you in hope, and you feed them with the food of the season. And with generous hand, you satisfy the desires of every living creature. Upright in all that he does, Yahweh acts only in faithful love. He is close to all who call upon him all who call upon him from the heart. He fulfills the desires of all who fear him. He hears their cry, and he saves them. Yahweh guards all who love him, but all the wicked he destroys. My mouth shall always praise Yahweh. Let every creature bless his holy name forever and ever. Living the Proverbs, day by day, for July 7th. Today's lesson from Proverbs comes from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. This devotion is entitled, God is Love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. The Bible makes this promise, God is love. It's a sweeping statement, a profoundly important description of what God is and how God works. God's love is perfect. But what does that mean? 
As humans, we can never understand the concept of perfect love. Can we? No, probably not. But what we can do is open our hearts to his perfect love. When we do, we are touched by the Creator's hand, and we are transformed. We don't have to understand it to accept it. Today, even if you can only carve out a few quiet moments, offer sincere prayers of thanksgiving to your Creator. He loves you now and throughout all eternity. Open your heart to His presence and His love. My utmost for His highest, for July 7th, our devotions entitled, All Efforts of Worth and Excellence Are Difficult. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. If we are going to live as disciples of Jesus, we have to remember that all efforts of worth and excellence are difficult. The Christian life is gloriously difficult, but its difficulty does not make us faint and cave in. It stirs us up to overcome. Do we appreciate the miraculous salvation of Jesus Christ enough to be our utmost for His highest, our best for His glory? God saves people by His sovereign grace through the atonement of Jesus, and it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. But we have to, quote, work out that salvation in our everyday practicing lives by practical living. If we will only start on the basis of his redemption to do what he commands, then we will find that we can do that. If we fail, it is because we have not yet put into practice what God has already placed within us. But a crisis will reveal whether or not we have been putting it into practice. If we will obey the Spirit of God and practice in our physical life what God has placed within us by His Spirit, then when a crisis does come, we will find that our own nature, as well as the grace of God, will stand by us. Thank God that He does give us difficult things to do. His salvation is a joyous thing. But it is also something that requires bravery, courage, and holiness. It tests us for all we are worth. Jesus is, quote, bringing many sons to glory, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And God will not shield us from the requirements of sonship. God's grace produces men and women with a strong family likeness to Jesus Christ not pampered, spoiled weaklings. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline to live the worthy and excellent life of a disciple of Jesus in the realities of life. And it is always necessary for us to make an effort to live a life of worth and excellence.
Modern Grace. And here I am in my little hallowed spot of privacy. Uh, this is our fourth installment of What the Bible Says About Seeking God. And our first scripture comes from Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus Christ is the desire of all nations. People are yearning for him, longing for him, even though they don't know it. They are yearning for solutions, wisdom, power, understanding, vision, and love. And he is all of these things. He will bring them all with him. He is going to bring them with him what he is, his undivided mind that is filled with the way that he and the Father have lived for all eternity. He will instill this way of life into their minds. The solutions to man's problems will come because he is sitting on the throne of nations. But we have been called to seek him now and not fail where Israel failed. It is in the process of seeking him that we become just like him. This is what God expects us to do with our life now, and we must do it. We must show him that we are thankful for our calling, for his forgiveness, for his spirit, and then, then seek him to be one with him. This is the solution now to bring both coming out of Babylon, Babylon excuse me, <laughs> and avoiding Laodicianism. It is to seek God with all of our heart in order to have the oneness of his mind. We are not to seek him just to find him because he has already taken care of that by calling us to give us access to him. Our seeking is to facilitate our coming to know him so that we can be like him. Thus prayer, Bible study, meditation, occasional fasting and obedience driven by gratitude and passionate desire to be like him and with him are the keys to oneness with him. Modern Grace. Thank you for joining me in my little spot, uh, hallowed spot of privacy. Uh, we're on our fourth installment of What the Bible Says About Seeking God. And our first uh, scripture comes from Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus Christ is the desire of all nations. People are yearning for him, longing for him, even though they don't know it. They are yearning for solutions, wisdom, power, understanding, vision, and love. And he is all of these things. He will bring them all with him. He is going to bring with him what he is, his undivided mind that is filled with the way that he and the Father have lived for all eternity. He will instill this way of life into their minds. The solutions to man's problems will come because he is sitting 
on the throne of nations. But we have been called to seek him now and not fail where Israel failed. It is in the process of seeking him that we become just like him. This is what God expects us to do with our life now, and we must do it. We must show him we, we are thankful for our calling, for his forgiveness, for his spirit, and then seek him to be one with him. This is the solution now to both coming out of Babylon and avoiding Laodicianism. It is to seek God with all of our heart in order to have the oneness of his mind. We are not to seek him just to find him because he has already taken care of that by calling us to give us access to him. Our seeking is to facilitate our coming to know him so that we can be like him. Thus prayer, Bible study, meditation, occasional fasting and obedience driven by gratitude and passionate desire to be like him and with him. These are the keys to oneness with him. Hey, guy. Hey, guy, what's up? <laughs> That's what it sounded like. Hey, guy. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil, or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is clean by contact with the dead body, or is, excuse me, if someone is unclean by contact with the dead body, touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with these people, with this people. Excuse me, I'm going to say that again. I am very sorry. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. God is teaching us through Haggai that the uncleanness of this world can be transferred from one person to another, but holiness cannot. In like manner, preparedness for God's kingdom cannot be transferred from person to person because in this lesson, it represents something internal, a matter of the heart. It is an intangible spiritual thing that accrues as a result of spending long periods of time learning understanding, and honing one's spiritual skills. It is too late when a skill is needed immediately, and it's not there. The same is true of character. It cannot be borrowed or lent. We cannot borrow a relationship with God. It is non-transferable as holiness is non-transferable. This teaches us that opportunity knocks, and then it passes. The foolish virgins, the foolish virgins, virgins of Matthew 25 failed to face the possibility that the bridegroom might be coming later than expected. When they were awakened by the shout, 
there was no time to do anything except to fill their lamps. Nobody can deliver his brother. Each person within his relationship with God determines his own destiny. The Laodicean's faith has become perfunctory. He attends church and is involved socially with brethren, but in daily life and private times, he merely goes through the motion in much the same manner as the Israelites in Amos' day. God shows that these unprepared or that those unprepared are not admitted to his kingdom, but this should not be construed as a callous rejection of a person's perhaps lifelong desire. For unless the Laodicean repents, he has rejected the kingdom of God on a daily basis, day after day declining to do God's will. Even though it is in his mind to desire the kingdom, he's not taking care of business. So God gives the Laodicean what he shows by his life, what he really wants. This is the principle of reciprocity. It is similar to an unmarried person who, despite surface appearances to the contrary, never makes preparations for his or her coming marriage. Supposing, supposing, suppose a man meets a woman who could become his future mate. But even though there may be an admiration on his part, the relationship never develops because the woman does little or nothing to show her own admiration. A Laodicean is like this woman rarely showing any affection for God, too busy to deepen the relationship. We have to seek God. That is our part. It cannot be casual. It has to be zealous. Is that not what God says to the, to the Laodicean? Be zealous and repent. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit does not mean to conduct one's life without vitality, nor does it mean that a person is weak. We would ever, we would ever accuse Jesus of being weak? Never. Jesus was the personification of humility. People think of humility as weakness because they are judging carnally by man's spirit, by sight. But the Spirit of God, the faith of God, judges according to the things not seen, the kingdom standards. Here is a definition of poor in spirit from a commentary by Emmett Fox on the Sermon on the Mount. To be poor in spirit means to have emptied yourself of all desire to exercise personal self-will and what is just as important to have renounced all preconce preconceived opinions, prejudices, in the wholehearted search for God. It means to be willing to set aside your present habits of thought, your present views and prejudices, your present way of life, if necessary, to jettison, in fact, anything and everything that can stand in the way of your finding God. When Jesus counseled us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 4, that unless we become as little children, we would not even be in the kingdom of heaven. He was not holding up a child's innocence or purity as a model. He was not counseling us to become childish, but to have a child's unconcern for social status, honor, 
or anything similar. When we are carnal, pride is such a master that we have little choice but to follow it. It is plowing the way before us. One who is truly poor in spirit, however, can ignore pride and follow God's lead. Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This beatitude, like all the others, has both a present and future fulfillment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I am also known. To, quote, see God is to be brought close to him. In this instance, the sense is that what, that what we are far from cannot be clearly distinguished. That is, as sinners, we are far from God is proclaimed the way in Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Thus, James chapter 4, verse 8 admonishes us, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Those who are pure in heart are those who with all their, being, all their being seek to remain free of every form of the defilement of sin. The fruit of this is the blessing of spiritual discernment. With spiritual understanding, they have clear views of God's character, will, and attributes. A pure heart is synonymous with what Jesus calls a single or clear eye in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. When a person has this mind, the whole body is full of light. Where there is light, one can see clearly. The sense of this beatitude's promise to see God carries over into the kingdom of God. In one sense, all will see God as Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 prophesies. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. They will see him as judge. Jesus' promise, though, is stated as a blessing, a favor. Revelation chapter 22, verse 4 says of those who will inherit God's kingdom, they shall see face to face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 reads, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. To see someone's face is to be so near as to be in his presence. In this case, the term indicated the highest of honors, to stand in the presence of the King of Kings. Certainly David understood the greatness of this. Psalm chapter 17, verse 15. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. God places great value on being clean, especially in terms of purity of heart. Also, we can easily become defiled, whereas remaining clean requires constant vigilance, a determined discipline, 
and a clear vision of what lies before us to serve as a prod to keep us on track. Since it is sin that defiles, this beatitude demands from us the most exacting self-examination. Are our work and service done from selfless motives or from a desire for self-display? Is our church going a sincere attempt to meet God or merely fulfilling a respectable habit? Are our prayers and Bible study a heartfelt desire to commune with God or do we pursue them because they make us feel pleasantly superior? Is our life lived with a conscious need of God or are we merely seeking comfort in our piety? To examine our motives honestly can be a daunting and shaming but very necessary discipline. But considering Christ's promise in this beatitude, it is well worth whatever effort and humbling of self it takes. It is good for us to keep Paul's admonishment found in 2 Corinthians uh, verse 7, or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 1, fresh in mind. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 24. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is this darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will, he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus urges single-mindedness. The teaching here involves simplicity of intention in living one's life. In light of verse, Matthew, the verse in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, verse 24 shows we must focus our attention on our highest priority. When that is done, it indicates devotion to purpose and undivided loyalty to the object of that purpose. In geometry, it is impossible to draw more than one straight line between two points. Though other lines may start at the same point, only one will reach the second point. All others end up somewhere else. Likewise, a person who tries to focus on several goals at once has no clear orientation, and he will wind up elsewhere. Some commentaries note that the ancients believed that light entered a person through the eyes, the windows of the body. If the eyes were in good condition, the whole body benefited from the unimpeded light. If the eye were not sound or single, the whole body's effectiveness was diminished. Thus, a person who single-mindedly pursues God's kingdom and his righteousness will have moral healthiness and simple, unaffected goodness. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Here the term righteousness has the sense of seeking all of God's spiritual blessings, favor, image, and rewards. 
we see in this verse not only a broad New Testament application of the term, but also, more importantly, its priority to life. This dovetails perfectly with the hunger and thirst metaphor in the Beatitudes, Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. It is not enough to ambitions, ambitiously yearn to accomplish. According to Jesus, God's kingdom and his righteousness are the very top priorities in all of life. Seeking God's righteousness is that important. What do we actually do to seek first the kingdom of God? How do we in our daily actions put God first? How do we take Christ's abstract statement and turn it into concrete steps that we can employ in our lives? One answer is Luke chapter 21, verse 36. Seeking God is the solution to all our problems. Luke chapter 1, or excuse me, 21, verse 36 gives us the first step in implementing that solution. Praying always. This is a foundation on which to build eternal life. By being in conscious and constant communication, we are acknowledging God. We are bringing him into the picture, obeying Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, by seeking him first. When we do that, we create the opportunity to put some interesting dynamics into action that will facilitate overcoming. Could we have any better companion than God? With no other, could we possibly find better fellowship? God designed prayer to be an act by a free moral agent who consciously chooses to be with him to develop the relationship. When we pray, we acknowledge that we are in the, in the presence of God, giving him the opportunity to rub off on us like ironing, sharpening, ironing, or iron, excuse me. When person A rubs off on person B, it implies that B becomes a little more like A. He begins to take on the other's characteristics. The same holds true with the relationship between God and us. Who has the easier time dealing with temptation, God or us? Of course, God does. It follows then that if the more God rubs off on us, the more we become like him, the more successful our battle against temptation becomes. The more God rubs off on us, the more the battle becomes God's, not ours. To have the right kind of fellowship and relationship with God, we have to be aware of the reality that we are always in his presence. He is a God near at hand. Because God has promised never to leave or forsake us, and since we are the temple where his spirit dwells, God is constantly with us. For his children, the question is never whether he is present, but whether we acknowledge his presence. Praying always accomplishes this. If being in the presence of a friend of fine character improves us on a human level, how much more true this is when we are in the presence of God himself, the very definition of character and wisdom. That is how he can rub off on us. We are with him in his fellowship, in his presence through prayer. When it comes to his children, 
He is never way off somewhere if we would but acknowledge this fact. God designed human beings to adapt to their environment. Before conversion, this world and its influences were molding us into an anti-God form. Acknowledging God's presence is the antidote that counteracts the influence under which we have lived since birth. God's calling. God's calling is an invitation to fellowship with Him, and getting to know Him is our salvation. If this is so, then the means prayer is a vital part of the foundation on which we need to build. That is the message of Luke chapter 21, verse 36. Praying always leads to overcoming, and both will lead to an escape from God's wrath and fellowship with Christ on into God's kingdom. Notice another illustration of the power of presence. What happens to us when we are around people who are pessimistic, angry, fearful, whining? Compare that to our reaction when around those who are positive and enthusiastic, facing life with gentle humor, determination, and energy. The former can quickly drain and depress us, while the latter can energize and enthuse us. In these situations, a literal transference of a spiritual attitude takes place. However, as we increase our physical distance from either of these examples, their power to influence erodes. What happens on the human plane is no different from what happens spiritually. The spirit, good or bad, of people radiates out from them. It can affect even change our spirit. Likewise, Satan's spirit permeates our environment, influencing us unless we choose to counteract it. That choice is praying at every opportunity, willingly submitting ourselves to the persuasion of the most positive, righteous, and unchanging attitudes that exist in the entire universe. This is why, after prayer, after spending time in the presence of God, people can feel peace, joy, or confidence. On the other hand, they can also feel humbled and chastened because God has led them to remorse and repentance. Prayer changes things. Us. Us.